are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Today, I'll be finishing my two-part series on the alt-right and talking about the new misogyny, as it's been called. And I'll be talking about Trump's false economic claims in the debate, which I started talking about a couple of shows ago, and Hillary's concept of trumped-up trickle-down. First, we have a few stories. One of the things about the Syrian conflict that is truly horrific is the use of cluster munitions in cities and heavily populated areas. Cluster weapons are weapons designed specifically to handle massed infantry in a time of total war. The use of these weapons, especially the anti-personnel ones, were designed for World War II, when you had millions of soldiers on the battlefield, and you were trying to kill a lot of those soldiers in a total war scenario. A cluster bomb is a large bomb that is essentially full of hand grenades. It can also be full of other devices, mines, or anti-tank weapons or high-explosive fragments, but the most common ones are fragmentation weapons. This means that when the bomb is dropped, it disperses a lot of very small bombs over a wide area. Opponents of cluster munitions say about the size of four football fields. Anything in that area is likely to be killed or maimed. If you are fighting the Germans in the Second World War, it would make sense why you would want to use a weapon like that. But if you're using it in a city, which is full of civilians, a lot of the people who are going to be injured are going to be civilians. And that is what Human Rights Watch and the Red Cross and other humanitarian groups have been alerting us to. These cluster munitions are being used by the Russians. And a lot of people have argued specifically for a ban on cluster munitions. But the problem is the cluster munitions ban law has not been agreed to by the United States Russia, China, India, Pakistan, or many of the other nations with large militaries. It's essentially Europe and a few countries outside of Europe who have agreed that cluster munitions ought to be banned. My view is that what we need to do is modify the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons to ban the use of cluster munitions in civilian areas, in heavily densely populated areas. Doing that would give the Russian and American governments all the room that they need to say, no, we need these weapons in case we go to a total war scenario again, but would ban the use of the fragmentation ones in civilian eras. And one last point about what's truly horrific about these is because they are made up of these very small bombs, they don't all go off in a cluster munition strike. There will always be unexploded devices. And one of the things that we have seen in Afghanistan, in Ukraine recently, and in Syria is small children will see this shiny object on the ground and run over to pick it up. That is why if you look at cluster munitions and the civilian cost, a massive number of the people who are killed by them, the civilians who are killed by them, are children who have thought they've seen a toy. 
And that's part of what we were talking about back in the 80s when we talked about the Soviets using so-called toy bombs in Afghanistan. Arliss? Governor Pence, Governor Mike Pence, is not the sane one. Well, okay, I'm sorry. You have to grade on a scale at this point with the GOP. He's maybe perhaps the sane one, but he's certainly not a decent human being. And let's talk about that with some specifics. First of all, let me give you just his career background. After college, he went to Hanover College here in Indiana. He became an admissions counselor at that same university immediately after he graduated. Then he went to law school at IU. Then (laughs) he served at the Indiana Policy Review, which is a GOP think tank. He did that for a couple of years. Then, and here's the part that just makes so much sense when you think about Mike Pence, he became a talk show host. He was a talk show host from 1993 to 1999. Then he won his seat in Congress in 2000, where he never passed a single law that he wrote in 12 years. He did, however, lead the fight to defund Planned Parenthood. That was his special signature issue. And he saw himself and described himself as a magnet working to pull the party to the right. He was out in 2012 when he became the governor of Indiana out of Congress, and he describes himself regularly and purposefully as a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order, unquote. He's been married once to Karen. He married her in 1985. And I do have to say this about Karen. She did found her own business, but the rest of this will, I'm going to ask you in advance to not laugh. This is the first lady of Indiana, and we need to treat her respectfully. Her business is That's My Towel Charm, Inc. They make charms for towels. <laughs> Sorry. I asked you not to laugh out loud. I was I... very clear that we need to be respectful. The business has been put on hold while she's the first lady of Indiana. But those of you out there with towel charms, you will appreciate the importance of this business. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> um, so... Mike Pence on women's issues. And this is, we hear a lot about Mike Pence on REFRA, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's just spend some time on Mike Pence on women's issues, because this is really where he's done the most damage. First of all, he has an obsession about abortion. He doesn't just have an opinion about it or a strongly held belief. This is a man with an obsession. And as I was saying earlier, it really was his signature issue in the House to defund Planned Parenthood. So when he became the governor of Indiana, he got serious about that and made it happen, closed five Planned Parenthood clinics in Indiana, including one which served the area I'm sitting in right now, but he closed, more importantly, the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Scott County. And that clinic did not offer abortion services, but they did offer STD testing, and I'll have more on that for you later. He was the prime mover behind the recent Indiana law, which requires women who have a miscarriage to arrange for either cremation or burial of the remains. That same law prevents women who have fetuses which have been diagnosed with major abnormalities that cannot survive after they're born from having abortions. And women, of course, have been very concerned about this law, so they've been steadily calling Mike Pence's office to report the details about their periods in case they passed an unimplanted fertilized egg and they need to know what to do with that. There's a high level of concern and stress here in the state among women. Of course, Mike Pence refers to that unimplanted fertilized egg as a child, so, you know, they need his advice on what they should be doing. Pence... 
was also the co-sponsor of Todd Akin's truly infamous forcible rape bill. We all remember that. It brought about the downfall of Todd Akin, but (laughs) Mike Pence was right there in there with him. He also cut $1 million from domestic violence programs. And if you're in California, $1 million is not so much. In Indiana, that's an enormous amount of money. And while he was in Congress, he also worked to repeal the ACA and its very specific women's health ramifications. So let's talk about Mike Pence on health. Okay, he tried to repeal the ACA and he still supports that. He only accepted the Medicare expansion into Indiana last year, but in a way modified by the state so that, you know, you don't cover too many of the poors. And he presided over and functionally encouraged what became an epidemic, as was specifically called out and identified by the CDC of HIV in Scott County. Remember, I talked about Scott County just a minute ago because he shut down the Planned Parenthood there, and they were the ones doing the STD testing in Scott County. The only people doing STD testing free in Scott County were more than 20% of the population is below the poverty level. Pence also oversaw overall cuts to public health funding across the state, and he shut down needle exchange programs. Of course, he has a moral, quote-unquote, moral stand on needle exchange programs, believing that if needles are not available, people will not use injectable drugs because there's no evidence to the contrary on that. Of course there's evidence. We know that. We've known that for decades. So he finally caved in on the needle exchange program after Indiana received absolutely terrible national press on the subject. But don't worry, that lifted needle ban is only temporary. And once the needle exchange ban was lifted and STD testing was reinstated only in Scott County, The epidemic was brought under control and new cases of HIV dropped from 20 a week, which in a county of only 24,000 people is a massive number, to two a week, which is still a huge number, but 18 people better than 20. So now we get to Mike Pence on LGBT issues. Of course, he made himself famous all over the country with his Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, REFRA, and he ultimately, after national press and enormous pressure from business interests all around the state, put in place a minor fix, but the law is still in place in this state. And Indiana has lost an estimated $250 million in short-term business. Conventions have left the state. Companies chose to expand elsewhere. But also Mike Pence authorized and spent $350,000 on an out-of-state PR firm to try to help Indiana recover from the REFRA PR disaster. But people got really upset that he was spending this money out of state, so he canceled the contract but he'd already spent the $350,000. So this state spent $350,000 for nothing whatsoever. So now we get to Mike Pence on the economy. This apparently is the reason that Donald Trump thinks Pence is such a fabulous governor because under Mike Pence, the economy in Indiana grew at a rate of 1.7%. Of course, the national average is 2.4%. You'll notice right away, 1.7 is less than 2.4. Indiana went from 38th per capita income in the country to 33rd. Median wages have dropped from 53,500 in 2000 to 46,900 in 2013. That's median wages in this state. Indiana workers make 86 cents on the dollar. Indiana women make 75 cents on the dollar. 
African-American households earn $21,000 less than white households. Hispanic households earn $15,000 less than white households. Pence oversaw the repeal of the common construction wage, so union workers earn less now, and the wage gap has increased in Indiana. Indiana's infrastructure has a D-plus rating from the American Society of Civil Engineers. We have 17,000 structurally deficient bridges, according to the Federal Highway Administration, and The Pence administration spent $71 million on faulty asphalt. They chose a contractor that was not recommended and spent $71 million on faulty asphalt. And then Mike Pence likes to brag about having balanced our state budget. Well, that's easy to do when you don't pay your bills. He didn't pay the subcontractors on the I-69 expansion project until he was forced to do so. So... Mike Pence, probably not the best choice to be the vice president of the United States. Up next, Will will be talking to us about the alt-right and new misogyny, here on Hopping Mad. May 23rd in 2014, in a town called Isla Vista in California, a young man named Elliot Roger killed six people and injured 14 before committing suicide. Elliot Roger is an interesting case in all of the mass shootings that we've had pretty much weekly for the past few years because of his motivations. He was inspired by what at the time was called the Manosphere, which is a key piece of what we refer to as the alt-right. Like a lot of mass murderers, he posted a manifesto about his reasons for committing the killings. And it was racist, homophobic, and very, very, very misogynist, describing a hatred for women in general. And if you look at his ideas and you compare them to what the alt-right was doing at the time and in still some places is doing now, you see a significant parallel between his beliefs and the beliefs of the alt-right when it comes to women. I did say in the last post that these groups are, are disparate and disorganized. One of the facets of that is that these folks don't like each other at all seriously even though they yeah the nazis don't like each other the nazis don't like the kkk they don't like the pickup artists or the misogynists and the misogynists don't like a small group who think that they are entitled to sex from women and are angry that they aren't getting any and if they aren't getting any it excuses acts of violence who call themselves incels 
those which stands for involuntarily celibate, those groups are, are hated. And Elliot Roger bounced around between various of these groups. And to be honest, I'm not sure how much these groups actually hate each other because of how much they have in common and the fact that they all really love Donald Trump. They claim to hate each other. They are very theatrical about their hatred for each other. But they work together very well to spread very specific ideology about women essentially being subhuman. And their view of women is that women are incapable of making intelligent and rational decisions and at the same time deploy a massively manipulative sexual strategy, they call it, against men. So it's an inherently incoherent view of the world because women at once are stupid and also smarter than literally all of the men in the world except for this small group of crazy lunatics. <laughs> now you know our plan. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, so to talk about this, they, when, they, when they talk about the sexual strategy, they really think that all women want to get knocked up and then divorce someone and walk away with his money. They believe that that's intentional and what all women want to do. And that leads to hilarious posts. For example, there was a new contraceptive that came out recently that allows the control to be in the hands of the man because there's not been any male contraceptives other than condoms for a really long time. This is uh, an injection that will keep you from, from releasing sperm that can be easily removed. So it, it sort of just blocks stuff off temporarily. It's like a vasectomy, but it's temporary as opposed to permanent. And it's being touted as, you know, a way for men to control their own, you know, reproduction and, and to not have to worry about getting someone pregnant if they don't want to. It's great because it allows there to be more open conversations, I would argue, about, about contra uh, contraception in general. When there are options sure. for both men and women, I think that's a great thing. And, and every feminist on this planet that I've found has also said it's a great thing. But in the mind of these twisted weirdos, this is a terrible thing that completely undermines the awful feminist sexual strategy and they will start freaking out once they realize what it means any day now. They'll start freaking out about it any day now. This has been talked about for a few years and they're still waiting for feminism to freak out about the fact that women are losing some aspect of the whatever. Okay. And you see that, yeah, they believe in these conspiracies. Conspiracy is at the core of what they believe. Have you noticed that anytime anyone accuses these folks of saying something awful, it's a joke? Trump's comments were just locker room banter. Right. And if you ever call them out online, they're like, I'm just joking around. It's just a joke. Why are you so sensitive? They say that anytime they get accused of doing anything wrong. It was just a joke. Just a joke. That's their get out of jail free card. And they used that recently about a hashtag that went viral about repealing the 19th Amendment. Oh, it's just a joke. We don't really want to repeal the 19th Amendment. And, and the 19th Amendment is what allowed women to vote in the first place. Right. And they joked about repealing it because there was a map of if only men voted and it was massively for Trump. So sure. they did the repeal of the 19th thing. Except for a ton of the people were not joking. You have white nationalist Ramsey Paul is his, is his uh, Twitter handle. He's Paul Ramsey. And uh, he says, yes, many of us are serious about hashtag repeal the 19th. This election will prove why women should not be allowed in politics or voting. When women dominate politics, issues no longer matter. It all comes down to gossip, smears, crying, feelings, and slander. There is no equality in nature. Equality is satanic. We are designed by nature for certain roles. All of this coming from a massive Trump supporter who says, 
and uh, again, hat tip to David Futrell at We Hunted the Mammoth for all of this. This election will determine whether we are a free nation or whether we have only the illusion of democracy. So apparently any democracy is illusory if women are allowed to participate in it. And then there's theater. Good to people. know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what these people actually believe. The people who were tweeting repeal the 19th entirely serious until they were called out for being serious. And then it was a joke. And notice as well, we were talking about conspiracy theories. When Donald Trump, when the people he's assaulted are finally coming forward, notice the first thing that he says, it's a conspiracy theory targeting me. Sure. Which is what all of these guys who are MRAs say anytime something they don't like happens. Anytime some woman has power, oh, it's a conspiracy. It's a, it's a conspiracy that, that these people have power. It's a conspiracy to take away our rights. Feminism is really just about st- destroying Western civilization by weakening men. It's a conspiracy. They live in these fantasy worlds. I think one of the worst things that happened is when, when it came out, when Trump's words were first released, the comment that he could just go up to any woman and grab them by the pussy, <laughs> bragging about sexually assaulting people, the alt-right defended his words. And they also freaked out about it. I was, I was reading uh, one of the pro-Donald Trump subreddits called The Donald on the day that happened, there was a post there that said, this really is a normal thing for people to do, right? Because I and my friends talk like this all the time, and I really just want someone to remind me that this is normal. And then they all assured themselves that, yes, this was normal. And Donald Trump was also attacked by a community of misogynists called the Red Pill, who said that his failure where he messed up was apologizing for those words, that it was a mistake to apologize for them, and that this is, you know, just, you know, strong alpha talk. Which is something echoed by uh, a guy named Theodore Beale, also called Vox Day. That would be D-A-Y because he can't spell Latin. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just enormously entertaining to me. Yeah, he talked about how Trump's comments were just real alpha talk, real manliness, and, and that sort of thing. And then he laid into Paul Ryan and said... If you ever wanted to know why I'm not a conservative or a Republican, this craving pandering to women pretty much sums it up. I'm not sickened by Trump's locker room talk. I'm sickened by the fact that weak little gamma males like Ryan have any influence on Western society at all. The only correct response to this scandal should have been a single question. So the F what? Oh, God. Yeah, that is how they view the world. And so this, when we talk about the alt-right this is what we're talking about. They're organizing, they're recruiting, and there's so much more I could go into. Uh, I would encourage you to check out wehuntedthemammoth.com, David Futrell's blog. He's done a lot of really hard and important work in documenting this sort of hatred. And it's something we've got to deal with because if we don't drag misogyny out into the light, we're never going to get to the place where we have the kind of society that we all want to live in I really encourage you to check out David Futrell's blog, wehuntedthemammoth.com, for more. I'll be dropping some links to his webpage on our website. Coming up, Arliss is going to be talking about Trump's lies in the debate, something we've been wanting to get to but just haven't had time for, here on Hopping Mad.
We're back on Hopping Mad, and today I'm talking about Trump's false economic claims. And I know that he's not going to be the president, so in many ways this doesn't matter. But Republicans in general make a lot of these claims. So I think this is worthy information to have in your brain, regardless of whether it's useful specifically in regard to Trump or not. One of the things he talks about is that the trade deficit is a disaster. He says specifically, our country is being ripped off by every country in the world. And we have a trade deficit of almost $800 billion a year. Well, folks, that is a $762 billion goods trade deficit, but that's only half the story because we export $262 billion more in services than we take in. So the real net is about $538 billion. Okay, that's still a bunch of money, but remember that in MMT, a trade deficit is a good thing. In a real economy, as opposed to a financialized economy, the real economy is limited by resources and labor. It is not limited by sovereign floating fiat dollars or pixels, as I so often talk about them. So the U.S. is giving away something for which this nation has an infinite supply in trade for actual physical things and inexpensive labor. A trade deficit is an advantage to any nation which holds all of its debt in sovereign floating fiat currency. And the issue with the trade debt is not that we have a trade deficit that is expensive. The issue is, are people out of work? And that's a different problem to address. And in fact, our guest today, J.D. Alt, who's written the fabulous book, Millennials Money, will talk about that really directly. And again, this is a problem to which MMT has the solution. Another thing that Trump talks about, and then he said that just blew my mind, is that the Fed is doing, quote, more political things than Secretary Clinton, unquote. Well, first of all, to me, to my way of thinking, he's calling out Janet Yellen in what, for me, is just another exhibition of his misogyny. But it also claims that the Fed will raise interest rates as soon as Obama leaves office. The Fed's open market committee is currently divided. And at the most recent meeting, they were going back and forth on whether or not they should raise interest rates. And they ultimately decided not to, but they basically told the financial community that they would at the next meeting. So that's what everybody is expecting. They've made it very clear that as we get close to the 4% unemployment tipping point, they get close to increasing interest rates. The things that have held them off this year are not the election, not President Obama, not Secretary Clinton. The things that have held them off are exactly the things that should be holding them off. At the beginning of the year, China's economy was in free fall, and in the middle of the year, Brexit happened. All of those things affected international markets, and those are the kinds of things that the Fed has to pay attention to. Of course, Donald Trump doesn't, but it makes sense that the Fed does. And it should be said that independent economists all over the world are in agreement that the Fed is marching to its own indicators and is acting independently. And it's also worth remembering that Trump is really, when he talks about this, he's really crossing a line. Because the last time a president got involved directly influencing the Fed was when Nixon pressured the Fed not to raise rates in the early 70s. And the pressure contributed to the Fed being unable to stop inflation that triggered later in that period of time. The Clinton energy plan, according to Trump, will cost the economy $5 trillion. So there's a difference in an implementation cost and a cost to the economy, right? And based on a paper by Columbia School of Business professor Jeffrey Heal, which is what the Clinton plan is sort of 
going off of and thinking about. The paper is called What It Would Take to Reduce U.S. Greenhouse Emissions 80% by 2050. And it's estimated to be $42 to $176 billion a year to build new production capacity, energy storage, energy transmission, and battery-powered vehicles. And again, this is something that J.D. Alt will be speaking to when we interview him at the end of the show. Over three decades, that amount comes to about $1.3 trillion at the low end and $5.3 trillion on the high end. But that idea does not take into consideration that the dollar spent on all of that manufacturing would be primarily circulating in the U.S. economy. That's money the federal government, which has infinite sovereign dollars, is spending into the private economy. We get that money. And it's not a GDP loss at all. It's an investment. The price estimates are incremental, and it also assumes that we can project consumption levels and technology costs 40 years into the future. Since we seem to be unable to project those costs six months into the future, I'm pretty sure that 40 years into the future is beyond our capability at this time. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be taking on the project. It means that putting hard numbers to it right now is a waste of ink. According to the EPA, cutting carbon emissions to the levels agreed by the Obama administration and backed by Clinton would save 34 to $54 billion a year by 2030 in public health savings. And again, my same caveat about how you do those projections is applicable. But they're talking about things like asthma, heart attacks associated with particle pollution, Harvard, came up with the same numbers. They came up with $38 billion. And the very liberal National Resource Defense Council says it's 55 to $93 billion a year. But everybody's in the same general ballpark. Researchers estimate that if nothing is done, that global incomes will be reduced by 23% by the year 2100 if something isn't done about alternative energy. And on top of that, it's not Clinton's plan, folks. Clinton is saying she wants to put us on a path to reducing greenhouse emissions. And we all know that putting us on a path is not the same as actually doing it. We want it done, right? You and I and every other progressive, we want it done. So putting us on a path, not really the strong statement we would like to see. Other studies have come up with similar numbers related to all of this. And they estimate that an investment of just 1% of GDP annually, and that actually comes out to be a big number, but again, sovereign floating fiat currency. Anyway, 1% of GDP annually is about what's needed. Trump refers to us as becoming a third world country. He says, the worst of all things has happened. We've spent all this money and we've become a third world country. It's politicians like Secretary Clinton, and then he goes off on another rant. Folks, we have the fifth largest GDP in the world. How that makes us a third world country, I'm just not clear on that. Somebody's going to have to explain that to me in small words. Well, we have a black president. I think that's pretty much what they mean by it when they call us a third world country. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. What was I thinking? And, uh, you know, we're about to have a woman president, which for them is just as bad because there have been plenty of third world Muslim countries that have had female presidents. So that's, that's what they really mean. Yes, that's what they really mean. I'm sorry. I thank you. I appreciate the translation of that. The last thing you said that I'm going to touch on is that Secretary Clinton and the Obama administration gave Iran $400 million. And you hear that, you hear that over and over again in conservative media, and it's just not true. It's not U.S. money. It was never U.S. money. 
when Iranian assets were frozen at the time of the Iranian hostage crisis, and then again as related to the sanctions program, the sanctions that the world placed on Iran as a result of their nuclear program, that money was in the U.S., it was Iranian money in the U.S., and it was originally being held in escrow for a large arms deal, which obviously got canceled. So the Iranians put money down on a product they did not get. We are slowly releasing that money, their money, back to them over a period of time as they deliver against the nuclear agreement, and we're not paying interest. So they're only getting their own money back. It's not any good deal for them by any stretch of anyone's imagination. And honestly, just to say this, since Trump did business with the Iranians between 1998 and 2003, he really should know better. Yeah, exactly. Trump made a lot of claims about the cost of immigration, that kind of thing. And I really spoke to all of that on our show on May 23rd of 2016. So if you're interested in that subject, you can go back to that point in time and just pull up that show and listen to it. It's on our site at imhoppingmad.com. And I'm going to skip now to talking about what Moody Analytics has said about the two economic programs proposed by Clinton and by Trump. And they have done a comparison. The comparison was done by Mark Zandi, who is an economist who's basically quote-unquote claimed by both sides. He was an employee of the McCain campaign, so he's definitely not one of our guys, so to speak. But Moody's Zandi did this very deep, rigorous analysis, the most rigorous analysis of the economic plans done this year, this cycle. And he estimated that Trump's plan would cost 3.5 million jobs and that Clinton's plan would add 10.4 million jobs. Cost 3.5 million jobs versus add 10.4 million jobs. Critics are saying that Zandi underestimates the value of tax cuts, but we've all learned that tax cuts to the wealthy are an enormous failure. So Zandi is probably right. And of course, MMT says that tax cuts are as valuable as additional government investment and spending, but it matters where the taxes are cut. It matters where that money is spent. And it's much easier to target in new spending to the places where you need to drive the economy as opposed to waiting around for the wealthy to decide to deign to spend it into the economy. Moody's numbers are verified by the free market-based tax foundation uh, and their economist, Alan Cole. The tax foundation had previously done its own study and come up with really different numbers. So you may hear those quoted in this election cycle. But once they added in all the factors considered by Moody's, their numbers came into complete alignment with Moody's numbers. And one last little thing to just keep in the back of your mind. The U.S. economy has added 14.9 million jobs since 2010. And a very, very final sort of denouement to this, President Clinton, while he was in office, the U.S. median income was in 1993, $50,478. When he left office in 2001, the median income was 56531 That's 50000 up to 56000 So how's that Clinton economic plan looking to you now? Next up, we have an interview with J.D. Alt, author of The Millennial's Money. I think you're really going to enjoy it. J.D. is an amazing guy and he's given us a tremendous interview here on Hopping Mad.
J.D. Alt is an architect who has spent much of his career researching, inventing, and visualizing things that, if they could only be built, might improve the prospects, prosperity, and sustainability of a collective society. He lives and works with his wife and architecture partner in Annapolis, Maryland. He's the author of the best-selling book, Diagrams and Dollars, and the new book, to which you have heard me refer many times since even before it was released, The Millennial's Money. Welcome, J.D. It's so nice to have you here. I'm so excited about this interview. Well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. J.D., Joe Firestone, whom we've had on this program and who I know you've uh, no doubt gone back and forth with on new economic perspectives, he got his Ph.D. in political science. I have mine in physics. You're an architect. I think it's interesting that the three of us, three non-economists, have written modern monetary theory books specifically targeted at non-economists. How did an architect get captivated by MMT and what compelled you so much that you simply had to write about it? Well, um, from the beginning, my interest in architecture focused primarily on a, on a specific strategy for creating affordable housing. Uh, in a nutshell, the strategy involved uh, dividing the house building project uh, process into two distinct stages. The first stage uh, would create what I call an architectural matrix and in the second stage, small-scale builders uh, independently design and construct dwellings within the matrix. The, uh, the affordable strategy, the affordability part of that was that stage one, the architectural matrix, uh, is to be built, managed, maintained, and owned as a public infrastructure, like, like the interstate highway system. And uh, this means that the cost of the stage two dwellings is then significantly reduced because many of the most expo expensive components of a, of a dwelling, the land, foundation structure, utility systems, etc., uh, are provided for free by the matrix. So I was never able to actually pursue this concept because I got uh, I got sidetracked in the necessity of having to earn a living, but. A few years ago, I decided that I was going to block out some time to think it through in detail and to uh, to try to illustrate it. And just as I embarked on that effort, President Obama caught me by surprise by announcing to the world that, in essence, the U.S. government was broke. It had borrowed way more dollars than it could ever pay back, yeah. and that it was essential to broker some kind of grand bargain right, to cap the, yeah. the federal deficit spending that was out of control. So Not a proud was, moment. Well, this was a, a, alarming to me because I was just getting ready to propose that the federal government spend lots of dollars uh, building infrastructures for affordable housing. So instead of exploring how matrix architecture could actually work and what it might look like, I began instead trying to understand how and why the federal government was broke. And uh, this eventually led me to the New Economic Perspectives website and, and the books by Randy Ray and Warren Mosler and the papers written by Stephanie Kelton. And in the course of educating myself about modern fiat money, which was something I had never even thought about before, uh, and in trying to discuss it with various friends and colleagues, I became fascinated by how difficult it was 
to make people see it and believe that it's true. And that's when I started writing my my essays, and that's how I got into this whole kind of uh, topic and this this whole effort of trying to communicate it. So um, did you, just um, to follow up on that real quickly, did you have that sort of epiphany moment? I've spoken with Joe Fireson about this, and both he and I had this moment of, oh, of course it's that way. It couldn't be any other way. Did that happen to you? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, fir- the first time I ever even read it, I realized that this, that it was not only true, but that it had to be true and that it couldn't be any other way. And that, and I was so amazed that, uh, that the world sort of continued to be so confused about this. But I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I think that before I started out, I knew that there was, that there was, that what Obama said could not possibly be true. I knew, yeah. I knew that that the federal government was able to spend a lot of money, and I could not figure out why all of a sudden everyone had decided that that wasn't possible. So uh, when I when I stumbled on the explanation of fiat money and how it works, uh, it, it just made instant sense to me. On this program, we've spoken in the past about the differences between the millennial generation and the three predecessor generations. In Millennials' Money, you say something that I think really distinguishes your work from a lot of the other MMT works, and that's this. What I believe and hope is that today's Millennials being the first cooperatively oriented civic generation to come to power in the first true era of modern fiat money will also be the first to grasp the astonishing possibilities this modern money perspective makes available to a collective democratic society. Equally important, it's my hope that those who legitimately, I believe, bemoan, mistrust, and abhor the bureaucratic behemoth that is our sovereign federal government will come to see that modern fiat money is not a license to fatten the beast further, but rather is a true opportunity to trim it into something lean and effective in assisting the affairs of both collective and individual aspirations. That's beautiful. Would you tell us more about that concept, about that idea? Well, um, when, when I started uh, to update and expand the ebook Diagrams and Dollars uh, to create a printed version of it, I uh, happened to be reading... Uh, at the same time, I happened to be reading a book by Neil and Howe called The Fourth Turning, which is an explanation of uh, generational archetypes and uh, how they have played out over the, over the course of history. And I was struck by their description of the current millennial generation in America as being an archetype that focuses on social cooperation. And also that this happens uh, to be the archetype generation that historically has had to resolve some momentous social problem or or world crisis. And in several of my earlier essays, I focused on the fact that modern fiat money is uniquely suited to accomplishing collective or cooperative goals. So... The connection between these two threads started really uh, weaving together for me, and it became the organizing structure and then the title for the book. And so the book evolved 
to become something different than what I thought it was originally going to be, which was just a printed version of diagrams and dollars. Um, and at the same time, um, one of the thing, I realized that one of the things that obviously stands in the way of the millennial seizing the opportunities of modern fiat money that, that I refer to is going to be the pushback from the boomer and the Gen X generations which have sort of positioned Americans to believe that collective cooperative action is, is actually something to be feared, uh, something that will expand the regulatory dominance of the federal government over our daily lives, that whole set of issues. Uh, so I wanted the book to also illustrate uh, the idea that creating collective goods on a grand scale can be accomplished while at the same time actually reducing the size and the activism of the federal government. <laughs> exactly. So I'm forever referring to the concept or the phrase gold standard thinking to talk about what um, my generation and the, you know, the previous generations have all, the way we think about money. You have coined a phrase, the, the ideology of money scarcity, which I love. Would you, how did you settle on that? And how did you, I mean, I think a lot of the rest of the MMT community talks about gold standard thinking, and you talk about the ideology of money scarcity. I think that's much more clear. Would you tell us a little bit about how you came to that phrase? Well, uh, when I, when I uh, was doing the diagrams for the second time, for the printed version of the book, um, I realized that the essence of what I was trying to debunk was the prevailing perception that dollars are a finite resource, right? That uh, we can't do things that we need to do as a collective society because there aren't enough dollars. Uh, when you think about it, our whole political dialogue is organized and directed by this belief. Right. And it's, it's obviously a throwback to the time when dollars were convertible on demand to a specific amount of gold, which is a finite resource. But somehow we've transitioned out of that connection without even realizing it. And we still operate in this, this, uh, this way where we, we imagine that what's constraining what we can do is, um, is the number of dollars that exist in the world. And so it's, it's literally kind of an ideology of money as, as a scarce resource. Exactly. And, uh, you know, along that whole concept of terms, as a physicist, what I say is that modern monetary theory, the, the phrase modern monetary theory, it's poorly named because it's not theoretical. It's proven. It's observationally true. Therefore, as a physicist, I would say it should be the law of modern money because I do think how you frame things is important. And uh, so you say something very close to this in your book when you talk about it's not a new economic theory. It's merely a poorly visualized reality. Care to join me in the law of modern money? Uh, and can, can we start a trend? <laughs> well, uh, I, I totally agree that it's misnamed, and it's actually a problem uh, to call it a theory. And so when I write about it and talk about it, I, I, 
I absolutely don't use that term at all. Um, and so I, I try to avoid that as, as, as much as possible. The, uh, it's, but I don't, in my mind, I don't think of it as so much as a, a law uh, that says the way things have to be. It's more, more or less, I, I can see where you're, you're coming from the, as being a physicist, but <laughs> I, I frame it more not as a law that we all have to follow, but as an, an opportunity that we all have that we can take advantage of. So you'll have to let me think about that one, about jumping on your bandwagon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, to paraphrase another quote from your book, as the dominant business model for humanity and for humanity as a dependent member of the Earth's integrated ecosystems, the corporate economy is now becoming quite literally an unmitigated disaster. You've already talked about how things kind of fit together. And to me, this statement ties together things like society, ecology, and economics. Tell me about the views I think you have about the interdependent nature of all of those things. Well, let's see. Um, it, seems, it seems evident to me that today there's a growing and almost direct conflict uh, between what's good for corporate profits and what's good for collective society. And in collective society, I include the, the ecological systems that, that support us. Um, it, didn't, it didn't always used to be that way, or maybe it just wasn't apparent, but today it seems like it's, it's blatantly obvious. And this is especially true in the field of energy production, for example, uh, where we continue to increase uh, uh, search for and and uh, mine oil and gas, shale gas, uh, while the world at the same time is struggling with the issues of climate change. And it's also true in food production, where large-scale industrial agriculture is destroying forests and destroying the fertility of the soil and the ability of the soil to sequester carbon. Um, and, and rather than building fertility and expanding the forests, um, but the corporate uh, business model is also a problem in the, in the fact that it seems completely oblivious to the fact that it's continually trying to work very hard to eliminate human labor or even participation from its profit-making efforts. Um, large building developers now, as I see this as an architect, for example, are using robotic bricklaying machines that can put brick veneer on a multi-story building in only a few days, Whoa. working 24-7 and never taking a lunch break. And the fact that the corporate builders see this as progress is just amazing to me. <laughs> so that's, what, that's, what I, that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about when I'm calling it a... a, a an unmitigated disaster. To deal with climate change more explicitly, let's talk about what MMT can do to address climate change and why convincing a large body of people that MMT is the solution is something we need to do very quickly. Well, uh, the most glaring challenge about climate change is that uh, it's framed as something that's going to cost a lot of dollars 
to mitigate. And the big argument about it is whose pocket those dollars are going to come out of, right? right. The, I, the IPCC, which is the international group of scientists who, who have been projecting and continue to project the impacts of global warming, uh, continuously include in their assessments what the cost of mitigation and adaptation is going to be. But if you understand modern fiat money, you realize that if we spend a trillion dollars, say, to mitigate climate change, those dollars aren't, are not coming out of someone's pocket. They're going into somebody's pocket. Um, the, the scientists often present their cost calculations as a, as a percentage of GDP, with the implication being that if you spend a trillion dollars on climate mitigation, you'll have to spend a trillion dollars less on something else, right? Yeah, money this scarcity, is, yeah. Yeah, this is the ideology of money scarcity personified. Um, if, you, if you understand modern fiat money, it's easy to see that properly managed, mitigating climate change is not going to cost anyone a single dollar. Instead, people all around the world are going to earn a lot of dollars doing the work, building the seawalls, relocating flooded communities, planting forests, creating off-grid energy systems, all, all the things that are, are, going to have, are, are going to have to be done. Uh, and it's senseless to say this work cannot be accomplished because there aren't enough dollars. Right. Because dollars can be created by the stroke of a keyboard. So the only thing that limits that actually limits our response to climate change are the, the real resources that are available, you know, to be put to the task, the labor and the, the energy and the materials and the technology, the, the real things uh, that are, are going to be needed to be done. Uh, but the, limit, the limiting thing is not the number of dollars in the world. Absolutely. I, I think one of the most... <laughs> frustrating things about MMT is knowing that we actually have the answer. We have the answer. And still watching the country struggle with things like exactly what you were just talking right now. How are we going to afford to mitigate climate change or debt ceilings or sequestration or even hearing candidates like Bernie Sanders who had MMT advisors on his campaign staff and was still out there using pay for language. How, how do we get past that? How do we make the leap? Uh, well, that's the trillion-dollar question, isn't yes, it? Yes, it I, is. <laughs> what, what occurs to me is that it might happen incrementally rather than all at once. Um, a while back, I wrote an essay called uh, titled 2020, and it imagined how it might unfold if Italy exited from the EU and reinstated the lira. And oh, I, I imagine that, yeah. That yeah, I imagine that to save the trouble of printing new money, they went straight to creating a digital lira with no paper money at all. And I imagine this helped people to suddenly see what the money was, where it was coming from, and you know how the system was actually working. And I, it occurred to me that maybe the new digital payment systems that are coming online now in the U.S. could have that kind of impact. I, I don't really know. But it's certainly clear that Bernie was hogtied by not being able to talk about it honestly. 
and um, you know, modern modern fiat money actually was partially utilized during the Great Depression, and then it was fully implemented during World War II. And you know, I hate to say it, but it might take a crisis of that proportion to get there again, and then to realize what we what we really have, uh, and not you know, destroy it again. Well, that crisis is climate change, but unfortunately, well, at least I hope it is, but unfortunately we have run out of time for our broadcast portion of this interview. J.D. Alt, thank you for being with us. And listeners, if you're listening on the radio, you can tune in to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or visit us on our website at imhoppingmad.com to hear the extended extra mad issue with J.D. Alt. Coming up next on Netroots Radio is K-Grow in the Morning. We're back on Hopping Mad with J.D. Alt, author of The Millennial's Money, which I really recommend you all rush out and get. I'm telling you, this is a brilliant book. And J.D. really gets into some fabulous and interesting topics that I haven't touched on in the show and I think are essential for moving our society forward. And um, I encourage you all to uh, support J.D. and this great book. In my upcoming book, speaking of books, The Smart Money's Guide to the Federal Reserve, I talk about treasury bonds, and I talk about them as a form of a subsidy, um, in other words, mini-carat interest in a carat economy, which the government gladly provides for those willing to put off spending their carats. You, J.D., speak in a similar way, but with fewer root vegetables. Would you like to elaborate on that uh, in terms of how you think <laughs> about treasury bonds? Right. Uh, okay, the, when I was doing uh, the, the diagrams, the dollars, when I was doing the diagrams the first time, uh, it was really a, an, a process of exploration. I was really trying to uh, visualize and explain everything to myself. And uh, when I'm doing that, when I'm working on an architectural project, I always begin, as most architects do, uh, by doing diagrams of what you know, what they're trying to accomplish. And so it was a natural way for me to approach it, but I, I didn't know exactly uh, how they were going to turn out or what the diagrams were actually going to show. And during the process of creating them, the biggest surprise, the biggest surprise came when I tried to figure out where treasury bonds fit into the diagram. Uh, initially, I had, to, you know, the the money from the treasury bonds going back up into the private sector pot and then I or the the the, the federal government's pot and I realized no that's that can't be right. And so I, I suddenly re- saw that logically uh treasury bonds could only be a special bucket, so to speak, where dollars from the private sector got sequestered for a period of time and couldn't be spent. And in return for that sequestration, they earned interest. And when the sequestration period was over, they were simply transferred back to the private sector bucket where they came from. And so, in other words, uh, there was just simply a savings account, a, a certificate of deposit. And the other surprise that came from that was realizing that that meant, of course, that the famous clock in New York City, which people think is recording minute by minute the federal debt 
that the American people are somehow going to have to pay back, that it's actually recording the savings that the private sector has sequestered in the Treasury bond savings accounts. And I love to hear how you refer to that. I love in your book how you refer to that as um, something that people should make people feel comfortable and relaxed and happy because there's that much money that's available to work in the private sector if it's needed. And that's that's never how we think of it. Uh, and I I just I thought I think your book does that really well. That's right. Yeah. Um, there's an enormous power in reframing the way we refer to Fed operations, the way we refer to fiat spending, to our total national savings. You do that a lot in your book, and I think it may be the most important work of MMT right now. Yes, no? What do you think? Well, yeah, I think you're right. I think the, one of the biggest difficulties that we have uh is that the, the economists and the op-ed writers who are talking about uh, these issues every day, they constantly uh, use terms that simply reinforce the misunderstandings. Yeah. Like, uh, the biggest one that jumps to my mind right now is they, they're constantly talking about the government spending taxpayers' dollars. Right. right. So that reinforces the idea that in order for the government to do anything, it has to collect enough tax dollars to pay for it first. If, and if it can't do that, then it can't do anything. So, If there was a um, drinking game on this show, one of the times everybody would be taking a drink is when I say the words, taxes pay for nothing, because right. uh, everybody take a drink, because uh, I say that so often for this very reason. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and that's just one example. Uh, but so, so when I'm thinking about this and, and writing about it, uh, I'm constantly trying, what I'm trying to do is, is figure out a way to frame it and talk about it and illustrate it without using any of those, you know, misleading terms. And I think that, uh, Eventually, you have to do that because uh, if you use those terms, you, you, you're, at, you're closing the doors before you can even get people to open them, you know, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah. So reframing is a big, big uh, challenge that's, you know, part of what we're, what we're trying to do here. One of the phrases you use in, in your book is net spending achievement. Uh, could you give us the Cliff Notes version of, of what that means and tell us why you as an architect are particularly drawn to it? Yeah, well, okay. Um, net spending achievement is the alternative reality to what our politicians and mainstream economists uh, constantly refer to as our federal deficit. Uh, the term deficit implies that we're deficient in something, that we have dug a hole in the ground that we're going to someday have to fill back in. Um, it implies that we've spent more money than we have. And all these notions resonate because they are certainly true when it comes to our personal bank accounts. Um, but when you understand how 
sovereign fiat money works, um, you realize that these terms, these ideas, don't logically apply to a sovereign government that issues its own currency for the purpose of paying its own citizens to achieve collective goals. Um, on an accounting basis, the, the federal government has to spend more dollars than it collects in taxes. Otherwise, the private sector ends up with fewer dollars than it started out with. Um, and if that additional spending uh, by the federal government creates public goods, as I would like to see it do with affordable housing infrastructures, for example, it seems more appropriate to call it a net spending achievement than it is to call it a federal deficit. Yeah. Further on that uh, framing theme that we've, we've talked about, uh, in your book you say, the result of sovereign spending is the creation of something that supports the private sector pot itself, elevates and holds it in position, helping and enabling it in many different ways, accomplish all of its free enterprise wonders. You consistently talk about the ways in which sovereign spending furthers, supports, and engenders growth in free enterprise. What are the most important things that this outlook can accomplish? Well, it seems to me that one of the most uh, intuitive objections to the idea of modern fiat money in America today is the fear and distrust of socialism. Um, The idea that the federal government can create and spend money at will is un-American because it it seems like it would inevitably lead to the federal government controlling everything and everyone being uh, working for the federal government. And it seems like it would create this monster that we don't, that in America we have historically and traditionally uh, tried to hold at bay. And one of the things I tried to do in the book, The Millennial's Money, was to paint a picture of how modern fiat money could accomplish exactly the opposite of that. That, uh, And I believe that this is not only possible, but I think it's essential. Um, in, in each of my four examples, of direct sovereign spending, which is spending uh, via the creation of new money. Uh, the federal government only creates the dollars. That's its only role. Uh, what those dollars are spent to achieve, how they are spent, who they are paid to, all of those issues are decided by local communities. And the work that those dollars pay for is undertaken and accomplished by private citizens and local businesses. So I see the system as something that very definitely supports free enterprise and, and local economies and that it's, it's not something that, that empowers the federal government to, to take over our lives and our, our, and run our economy. So I don't remember whether I first read this from you on New Economic Perspectives or whether it wasn't until I actually read The Millennial's Money, but 
I'm tooling along reading, do, 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 and all of a sudden you're quoting E.O. Wilson. And if you were at my house and looked at the massive bookshelves I have in my house, you would see the large E.O. Wilson section of my bookshelves. So are we twins separated at birth, or is there, <laughs> is there like some underlying logic to people who are drawn both to ideas like MMT and to the cooperative gene? Well, the uh, I think, yeah, maybe we should go back and check our birth certificates here. <laughs> uh, but what, what fascinates me uh, most about E.O. Wilson's work and modern fiat money is that, which, which incidentally, I'm not aware that he even talks about, but no, I don't think he does. Some, somehow, I uh, it was it was this very strong connection immediately in my mind uh, reading his work. It, so when you look through uh, when you look through his eyeglasses, so to speak, it seems very clear to me that that what we're talking about here is an evolutionary process, and that the first human society that truly understands and embraces modern fiat money. It's like a new tool. It's like discovering a new tool. That that society will have a spectacular survival advantage over other societies. And uh, in fact, it's my hope that the American millennial generation will in fact be that first society. I actually think you might be right there because there are so many millennials that you know, if you are on and you are MMT websites and that kind of thing, you can see um, the the huge uptick in millennial participation at those levels, in educational atmospheres all around the world, talking about MMT in, you know, a multitude of languages. I think it actually is taking off in that generation. It It gives me tremendous hope. Let's, you know, let's hope that continues. Well, that's right, and and I think the and one of the things I point out in the book that it that they are the challenge that they're actually going to have to confront the, the big crisis uh, that they're going to have to confront as a as a generation is in fact uh, climate change, global climate change. Right, and in fact, from my perspective, fiat money is the only the only tool that they could possibly have that, that gives them the, the uh, a chance of actually succeeding in addressing that challenge well and i think so, it goes back to what you were yeah. saying in the very first very first or i think will's very first question about the fourth turning uh, this is a generation who's going to be able to see things in terms of we defeated climate change together using this tool, as opposed to I did it myself and I made a whole lot of money doing it. Right, exactly. Yeah. What don't so-called cooperative genes understand about money scarcity? This was an interesting uh, kind of detour you took in your book. I was really fascinated by it. Well, um the point I was trying to make in the book is that the ideology of money scarcity uh, is something uh, that operates completely in the favor of the selfish gene. Um, and that in buying into the idea, the, uh, which, by the way, the, you know, the progressive 
political structure in the United States has done yep. in, in, in declaring that we have a fiscal crisis and that we have to have a grand bargain to reduce uh, government deficits. You know, in buying into that idea, the, the cooperative gene uh, is really turned into a beggar. It's uh, when they when they say we can just not spend money on this missile system or this aircraft carrier and instead spend money on this other project over here it drives me nuts. Yeah, because right. it's not an it, it's not a it's not that I'm saying the missile system is a necessity. I'm just saying it's not an it's not an either or. Exactly, exactly. And when and, and from my perspective, when you make when you take the cooperative instinct. Uh, in a society, and you disempower it, disenfranchise it almost, uh, turn it into a beggar, that in, in the long run, this really is not bode well for the future of that society. So that's why the idea of the millennials being, it, being in fact, um, more or less um, dominated by the cooperative instinct or the cooperative gene um, Makes them kind of a natural, a natural recipient or a natural user of this idea of modern fiat money. The one thing I think that, if if we could just get progressives to grab a hold of this idea, the empowering thing about MMT is: listen, we don't have to make enemies with the guys on the other side. You get to keep your aircraft carrier. We get to mitigate climate change at the same time. In That's other words, right. we don't have to go to war with them. We don't have to be in conflict with them. And by continuing this idea of money scarcity, it keeps us in conflict. That is holding us back as a society. And yeah. it's it's enormously frustrating. Uh, anyway, so um, moving past that, though, your book, this is where you do something that I had not seen before. And that's really unique to you, and I think it's an enormous contribution to the entire MMT conversation. And so kudos on this. You talk about these empowering apps in your book. And I know people are thinking there's an app for that, but there is actually. There can be an (laughs) app for that, and that's the amazing thing. You talk about using this these empowering apps combined with sovereign spending to solve things like the cost of education, both pre-K and college, um, quality, affordable senior housing, facilitating good jobs. Can you um, talk us through one of those apps so people understand what we're talking about here? Well, yeah, okay. So the the apps that you're referring to, in my mind, are are, are, are a, a strategy to target an agreed upon collective goal and then to coordinate and assist the efforts of independent cooperative groups to implement that goal on a, in a local community. Okay. And mm-hmm. so the app is a way of keeping the federal government out of the formula, except for issuing the currency necessary to pay for the work. So probably the easiest example uh, to describe here is that's in the book is uh, the Work Local app. Um, And this is a platform uh, which enables any local group to propose specific work or a specific project that 
A, provides a collective benefit, and B, doesn't directly compete with the product or service already being provided by private enterprise. Um, each proposal excuse me, has to, has to be endorsed by three elected local officials. And after the work project is endorsed, it's given an account in a national system of work local projects. And these accounts are managed through the app, through the, the, the platform. And the local group, then once it has its account, is able to submit invoices for work accomplished and materials purchased, etc. And fiat dollars are issued and deposited in the, their, their account to cover the invoices. Um, and all the work and invoices uh, and outcomes are tracked on the app platform and are publicly accessible and searchable. So everyone can see what's going on. Everyone can see what the dollars are being spent to accomplish. Um, so it becomes kind of like a, a national uh, dialogue, if you will, uh, that focuses on doing things at the local community level uh, that provides for, for uh, collective benefits, um, and, but paying for it through the issue, uh, issuing of sovereign fiat money and having it, the, the whole process being totally transparent. Yeah. With the rise of the tiny house, house seeds seem like the right idea for the right time. Would you tell us about them and how they're faring? Well, uh, the uh, the house seeds and the Soho in the Sky, those projects that are on my, my website, are two sides of the same coin, really. They they are the matrix architecture concept that I uh, was talking about earlier when we when we first started the interview here. Um, and I would... So they're, they are a strategy for creating affordable housing. Um, and they both involve the, the two-stage process where one, pro, one part of the house is uh, or one set of components of the house is built and paid for by um, and owned cooperatively, if you will. And then the the actual dwelling units themselves, which uh, utilize the, the resources of that matrix, uh, are privately owned and privately developed. Um, and as I said, I was I that's this is an idea that I wanted to. Uh, to uh, pick up and pursue, um, but I got sidetracked by the fact that uh, there wasn't any enough money to uh, for the for the public part of the process to be to be implemented. Um, and I'd like to, <laughs> I would like to go back and uh, develop these ideas further. Um, but I'm having difficulty right now letting go of the challenge of getting modern fiat money understood and accepted. And I, I feel that until that happens, these other ideas really almost have no foundation to be built upon. Yep, I feel you there. 
Folks, you've been listening to our interview with J.D. Alt. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you guys. It's been amazing. The book is Millennials Money. Where can we pick it up if we wanted to pick up a copy? Well, it's uh, you can buy it through Amazon, and you can buy it through my website, jdalt.com. Folks, it's a really important book. I encourage you all to check it out. Thanks for listening. See you next time.